I don't see it as a career. <laughs> I see it as what I do every day. I was happily retired. I mean, I wasn't happily in pain, but I was, I was done, I thought. And it's one of those things that when people started seeing what was happening with us, they started asking us to make medicine for them and then for their family members. And then, uh, then I started treating cancer patients and I've treated, oh, I don't even know how many thousands of cancer patients at this point. This is the Cannabis Enigma, cutting through the smoke to have informed, serious conversations for regular people. Hi, I'm Michael Schaefer Omerman. And I'm Alana Goldberg. So it's reruns week, huh? Yeah. We are going to bring you one of our favorite episodes from the beginning of the podcast about, I don't know, 30 or so episodes ago uh, with one of our favorite guests, Mara Gordon. You probably know Mara from the documentary on Netflix that she was featured in, Weed to the People. And uh, she's also one of the pioneers in the cannabis space. Yeah, this was one of the first interviews, uh, like you said, that we did for the Cannabis Enigma podcast. Um, and it was actually the first interview that I recorded at the Portugal Medical Cannabis Conference in Lisbon in uh, back in November 2019. Um, and apart from... Wait, the f- what? You used to go to conferences? <laughs> yeah, we used to go to conferences. With people? <laughs> With people. And we would sit and you saw their faces? right next to each other. Yeah, and we would see their wow. faces. <laughs> okay, tell me about this one. Um, so, yeah, so this, you know, as it sounds, was was a medical cannabis conference in Portugal. Um, and Mara was one of the keynote speakers there. And I, you know, had the honor of meeting her and, and interviewing her for the podcast. Um, so, you know, Mara probably doesn't need so much uh introduction. Um, but just briefly, she's actually a process engineer um, by training and she brought that kind of systematic and data indicated uh, way of thinking when she started working with patients. Uh, and she's really a pioneer in the industry, both in terms of uh, developing dosing regimens and also developing products, appropriate products for different conditions, indications and symptoms. Let's listen to the interview with Mara. Uh, it's a good one, like we said. And we'll be back in two weeks with a whole batch of new episodes with exciting guests brought to you by the Kenigma and our partners at Americans for Safe Access. Hi, Mara. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. So let's uh, go back to the beginning. Tell us uh, how you got into the industry. Why cannabis? Um, I got in as a a patient both for myself and for my husband. Uh, Back in those days, there was really no uh, lab-tested medicine at the dispensaries. They just had flour and homemade brownies and things like that, and there were really no options. And so I'm a process engineer, so I approached this as science, and I was like, if somebody has to be able to figure out a way to know how much of each cannabinoid and the terpene in the, in the profile so that we can have a consistent medicine. Mm-hmm. So I just started doing it myself. And what were you treating, if you don't mind me asking? Well, my, my husband, in his case, he was having a posterior anterior um, fusion 
So it's very, very complicated spinal surgery. And um, I had been a uh, serious chronic pain patient, um, plus some other issues, after having spinal meningitis back in 1996. And so I had been on over 26 pharmaceuticals, including fentanyl, um, and you name it. And um, I had gotten off of all of them because they don't really help with chronic pain. They're good for acute. So I was searching also for something for myself. Um, the one important point in addition to this is my husband has now been sober for 31 years. And so it wasn't, it was obviously much less back when we started, but he was not willing to risk his sobriety to have the surgery. He said he would rather have become a cripple and be in a wheelchair than to risk it. So cannabis was kind of a, a you know, a Hail Mary hoping that it worked and it did. And how did it turn into a career? I don't see it as a career. <laughs> I see it as what I do every day. Um, I was happily retired. I mean, I wasn't happily in pain, but I was, I was done, I thought. And um, it, it's one of those things that when people started seeing what was happening with us, they started asking us to make medicine for them and then for their family members. And then, uh, then I started treating cancer patients, and I've treated, oh, I don't even know how many thousands of cancer patients at this point. But you know, cancer patients talk to other cancer patients in waiting rooms. And so I would treat a cancer patient. And the next thing I know, six or 10 more cancer patients would be calling and saying, you help so-and-so, please help me or help my daughter, help my baby. And, um, I don't know how to say no, you know, to, to helping and being of service to somebody. I mean, it's like, no, I couldn't, there's no way. So, uh, I just kept working and then it became to the point where we couldn't do it all ourselves. And so then I brought in uh, a nurse and then doctors and lab directors and trained them in our methodologies and expanded uh, exponentially from there. You know, started doing clinical trials through Zelda Therapeutics and all the other things I've done. Can you tell us a bit about that uh, doctor's education? How does that process work? Well... Initially, when the first, you know, I, I started training nurses and then, you know, I, I love nurses. They're wonderful. Thank God we have them. I don't think that it's the right mentality necessarily for setting a dosage with patients because nurses tend to be, oh, they're going to hate me for this, but nurses tend to be uh, more accustomed to following instructions and not taking, not going outside of that because there'd be terrible repercussions to their careers if they did. Now you have nurse practitioners and physicians assistants and things like that, that are a different category, but I'm talking an average uh, licensed vocational nurse or RN. Um, they're just not the same mindset for understanding. They don't have the same kind of coursework in the physiology and pharmacokinetics and things like that. So I, when I realized this and I switched to doctors, um, I actually uh, went and spoke to the Society of Cannabis Clinicians initially, and a, a small group of doctors approached me and came to me and said, we just want to follow you around and see what you do. And I was like, I don't, I'm not a doctor. But I actually had the first doctor sat on over 70 intake calls with me with patients before he felt comfortable taking the first patient himself. Mm -hmm. And then he started training some of the other doctors. And I occasionally still obviously do some, but the whole idea was to always make it medical professionals doing this and not me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And uh, do do you come up against any backlash in the process from the medical community or, or uh, elsewhere? Uh, absolutely. Um, there have been many, many doctors who have been um, um, uh, derogatory towards what I do. And, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, when somebody bashes someone, they're bashing them, saying something about themselves more than they are. You know, what's the, what are they afraid of? Right. Because I've made it clear in there's a lot of videos out there that people have posted of my talks. And I make one thing very, very clear always. And that is that I am not a doctor. And I believe that this should be doctors should be the one uh, making the recommendations. Mm -hmm. All I'm doing is collecting the data. Now, what you do with it is up to you. You know, I know how to collect data. I know how to analyze data. I know how to make incredibly good medicine. But you have to be the one managing your patient's care to determine whether what they're taking is going to have interactions with their other um, uh, medications or, you know, what their comorbidities, that sort of thing. Granted, I built a software platform that supports all the data that the doctors use, mm -hmm. but they don't all use it and they don't all use it continuously or whatever. And, and some of them incorporate pieces of it into their existing, their own software. Um, but what's important at the end of the day is that they have a starting point for knowing where to start so that one of the earlier speakers today talked about five milligrams per kilogram. That's true in an age range between, you know, maybe zero and three, right? But what if your patient is 10 or 20 or 30? What if your patient has these comorbidities, all those things? So I've built all that in as a starting point for doctors. And then their work keeps making the data smarter. Um, I think one of the things that's, uh, that really stands out with cannabis medicine as opposed to uh, the more like traditional um, medicine is that so much of the information actually lies with the patients rather than with the institutions. And so this data um, that you have is, is so much more important. Um, what have you found out uh, along the way that's, that's been surprising to you um, from the data that you've gathered? Well, I think just to the point I made before, I think the thing that initially was so surprising is the lack of correlation between the weight of the patient and the dose. That was that was shocking. I because I would you'd see some big giant guy and make the assumption that this person is going to need enormous amounts, and they might be a lightweight. You know, or I hate to use the pejorative, but they might be. And then you'd meet some scrappy young woman or old woman. And she would, what she would be using would have me flat on the floor, you know, and that there is none. The idea that there's a difference in the aging is such a huge thing because when I get, when I work with a, a pediatric cancer patient, which is probably what I'm, though it's not what the most of what I do is the most I'm known for, mm -hmm. for various reasons, um, that. I would tell that dose to the parents and they'd be like, what? And then I had one instance where a parent decided to try it for herself. She goes, I can't give this to my child. And I'm like, number one, you're not six. And number two, you don't have stage four glioblastoma multiforme. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be the same. And to get people to understand that it's as you get older, you need less ver where uh, allopathic pharmaceuticals have the lower doses for the younger patients. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that a pediatric patient would actually lower their dose as they get older? That's exactly what that means. As they get older, the dose would likely go down. You can talk to um, 
you know, longtime cannabis users that have been using it for 30, 40 years. And they'll tell you, I can't use anything like what I used to use. Now, they aren't just talking because it's stronger, because it's still about the milligrams. If it's stronger, it doesn't mean that you have to get higher. It just means that you have to smoke less or take less or whatever. It's just it's it's just math. Um, but oftentimes these older patients or these older individuals will say that they're shocked at how they just don't have the capacity anymore. It's the same thing with alcohol, though. It's the same thing with a lot of things that as you age, you just I mean, I have a glass of wine now and I'm done. I used to be able to have, you know, would go and have a bottle of wine before we went out as a as a starter. I can relate to this. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I can't even imagine doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And what about conditions? Um, has, the, has the data that you've gathered helped you um, understand what sort of product to prescribe to someone depending on their condition and obviously age and other factors as well? Yes, we have actually, because we have full lab results on every batch that's been done since 2000, early 2011. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of data on a lot of patients and a lot of products. Right. We're able to say, okay, when I'm doing a creating a report or looking to do some um, statistical analysis in our data, I can look at it and say, okay, based upon the lab resor- results associated with this, uh, it's called ICD-10 code. It's the codes that are used for billing insurance companies. Mm-hmm. But it's also the way that I've been collecting the data so that when somebody has a particular type of cancer, we're specifically going to be uh, tracking data around that same diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? Because people say to me, as an example, they'll say I breast cancer. Well, there's so many different types of breast cancer and they're all treated differently. So we want to get very specific. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so if we can look at that and we could say, okay, we've treated, you know, 150 glioblastoma, for example, multiforme, let's just say GBM. And within this age group, from this, you know, zero to... 10 years old. And of those, they've used this much THC and this much CBD on average. And this is the profile that is found to be over time, the most well tolerated and well accepted and where we've seen the best results. We cannot claim causality by any stretch of the imagination, but we can also back to what I said in my presentation today about uh, compliance and what's required for compliance. If these are the ones that are going to be the most comfortable for the patient. The other thing that I look at is terpenes for the most, they're found in other plant sources. So you look at other plant sources and what their medicinal benefits are. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to select those that have at least well enough understood from me, either from um, uh, Ayurvedic medicine or some other uh, plant medicine herbalist to find mm-hmm. out which other, like, for example, lavender, like I talked about, to have that because it has a sedative, calming effect, um, not so sedating, but calming more, um, then I'm going to want to have profiles that have more of the linalool. And so as a result, that's what I've been using. Now, I have also tried using ones that have a very different profile. And for certain people where they have, you know, like, let's go back to cancer, but they also have PTSD or ADHD or severe anxiety or, you know, OCD or whatever it is, we can maybe give them something that also has more pining in it and it'll help to make them more comfortable so they don't have that paranoia that can come with too much sedation. And uh, when you're making the products, are you using single strains or are you mixing strains and adding in the terpenes in order to kind of uh, pull these profiles together? 
Well, we um, uh, we never uh, add. Okay, we only subtract. Okay. All right. So does that mean you're taking, uh, like I asked before, is it a single strain or are you adding strains together and then uh, subtracting? Right. We only use a single strain, Mm -hmm. except we call them cultivars because a strain is a bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. So we call them, we use them cultivars. So we'll use a single cultivar. Um, There are certain products that we make uh, where we are mixing two. For example, we have a one-to-one THC to CBD ratio product. It has 10 milligrams per milliliter each of THC and CBD. Mm-hmm. We're using a, um, a particular profile of a hybrid that we're using on the THC side that's pretty consistent. I mean, we've got, when we have a grow now that we find something we want, we buy all of it. And then we have the same genetics and have it grow over and over again. So there's going to be slight variances, but in, in a natural product, there's always slight variances, right? Um, and then on the CBD part of the formulation, we use ACDC. So we are, in that case, we are mixing two to make one product. But I don't mix two different cultivars to make one um, uh, extract or something of a, like, I wouldn't take three or four THC uh, cult, uh, uh uh, flowers and mix them together to make a particular profile. Um, I would search for, I mean, I'm not against doing that and I've done it in the past. In fact, in the, in the film that's that we, the people they're showing where I actually had been doing that to create an effect in particular for a woman. That is something that someday in my fantasy world, I have this beautiful store with all, you know, have you ever gone into an olive oil store? Of course. Okay. You know, they have all the beautiful and you select and you taste them and you try them and, and then they, you get the ones. I would love to have a similar setup, but where I could take, you know, three parts, you know, banana kush with one part sour diesel and, you know, that are the profiles of those and put them together to create this profile. Um, I believe in doing that. I don't believe in the adding of of artificial or external terpenes um without exception i have not seen it done where it was done well uh they tend to add too much um and it and it's in it uh it people don't feel as good from it and if people don't feel as good they're not going to consistently take it yeah so you mentioned uh, the, the three factors for compliance. Um, for our listeners that, um, you know, missed your talk here at the Portugal Medical Cannabis Conference, can you kind of run over, the, over those quickly? Sure. So I talk about the, the, um, the comfort, and I talk about the cost, and I talk about the consistency. And those three things being very important to have somebody be compliant. Um, if, every, if you take your medicine and don't, feel that it's a compulsory thing to do and it doesn't make you feel comfortable, you're not going to comply. You're not going to take it because it doesn't feel good. Um, so you're not going to do it. The other thing is, oh, I'll tell you a, a personal story very quickly on that. I had, um, I take uh, agaricon mushrooms every day and it gets really expensive because I take double of what, because if I've had MRSA, so I take quite a lot anyway. So, um, Somebody suggested that I just buy the powder and put it in, you know, a drink or drink it. Well, it was disgusting. 
And yeah, I could sit there and put it in capsules and do all that, but I'm not going to do that. It's Mm -hmm. just not, it's just not, it's not comfortable. It's not within my zone of comfort of how I live my life and how I take my medicine. So I was not complying. So I went back to capsules, even though it's expensive, it's, it's a, it's a luxury worth it for me on, on, um, uh, let's see, comfort on, on, uh, Cost, cost, obviously, unless it's being covered by the government or by private insurers or whatever, the cost can be extraordinarily prohibitive to for patients. And um, we have to work to get that down. One of the things that I think is so important about understanding dosing is in order to reduce the cost, because with very, very few exceptions, people are under, excuse me, are overdosing themselves. And I mean overdose, I don't mean, oh, you're going to die and end up in the gutter. I mean, but over what what a therapeutic dose would be. Mm -hmm. So, and because it's so expensive, it doesn't, it's not practical to do that. You wouldn't take, you know, an expensive Saigon cinnamon and be wanting to get a couple of granules it and just take the lid off and open it all over the table and swoosh off into the the trash what you don't need, right? Mm-hmm. Yet people with cannabis, they take far, far more than they need to achieve what their objective is. And then the third thing is, let's see, cost, uh, consistency. So you can be consistent with a whole plant within certain parameters of the fact that, uh, for example, when my curcumin shows up every month, when I get it ordered and it comes, sometimes it's a dark orange, sometimes it's a brownish, sometimes it's a bright orange. It's because it's a slightly different plant. As long as it's having the same effect and it's same basic profile, people are comfortable. And I also think that people do better when there's a slight variance in it, you know, over time than having the exact same thing time and time and time again. Why do you think that is? I think that we build up just a tolerance and we build up a sense where, you know, um, you can still have perhaps some of the therapeutic effects if you're, if you're what you're trying to treat is a seizure disorder or if what you're trying to treat is a, a tumor, reducing reduction of tumor size. But if you're trying to reduce anxiety or PTSD or insomnia and things like that, you have to still be able to have that full effect of it um, and not just the underlying effect uh, uh, on the body. So, it doesn't really seem to matter. I also think that having some disvariances in general is healthier for us. It keeps our immune system stronger. It keeps us having to constantly having to fight this or that. And that's how we build strong bones and bodies, as they say. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a good advice in general. Yeah. I think not only just uh, in terms of cannabis. Yeah. I mean, anything. I think about, you know, I, I like I said, I've been vegetarian for 48 years now, um, and uh, I eat mostly home-cooked, plant-based, obviously plant-based foods. And it's uh, there's something about making it's not going to be the same each and every time versus opening a uh, a, a can of something or a, a a frozen food where replication and exactly the same is key. There, but there can be a certain tolerance for variances. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Mara, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm Michael Schaefer Omerman. This episode was edited, mixed, and produced by myself and Alana Goldberg. The Cannabis Enigma is a co production of The Canigma and Americans for Safe Access. 
please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us and it makes us feel good. 